Welcome to the Physician's Financial Checkup Podcast, where we discuss the financial challenges and opportunities facing medical professionals. In this podcast, we'll discuss a variety of financial topics that are important to physicians, such as retirement planning, investing, and estate planning. We'll also interview experts in the financial services industry to get their insights on these topics. If you're a physician or a spouse of a physician, I encourage you to listen to this podcast. We will provide you with the information you need to make sound financial decisions and achieve your financial goals. Here's your host, Brent Bowden, a financial coach and certified financial planning advisor with over 15 years of experience helping medical professionals achieve their financial goals. To learn more about Brent Bowden and his services, visit brentbowden.com. Welcome to the Physician's Financial Checkup podcast. Today, I'm lucky to have a local Kentuckian guest with me today, Jeb Gerald, who is the founder and certified financial planner at Plentiful Wealth. Uh, his firm was established in 2021 with a focus on retirement planning. So with over a decade of experience in the industry, uh, he works with a diverse clientele out of Louisville, Kentucky, uh, ranging from kind of that mid-50s all the way through uh, and beyond retirement. So a, a lot of, as a fellow CFP, we're going to talk through a few uh, finance topics about breaking down the jargon into easy concepts that everybody can understand and distill those topics uh, to be able to get the most out of your financial planning journey as you build financial freedom today. Welcome today. I've got a guest speaker with us, Jeb Gerald. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks, Brent. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Looking forward to some fun conversation uh, with a fellow advisor. So I appreciate you being on with us uh, as a CFP. It's always good to have another CFP on here and always knowledge to our folks. Definitely. So tell us a little bit briefly about your background, how you got to where you are today. What's yeah. that journey been like for you? So the quick story is uh, I was in the army. I was living in Monterey, California, and uh, I had some time at a desk and I realized I really enjoyed economics, but I also really enjoyed working with people. So I was trying to think, how do I turn that into a job? I left Monterey on a Thursday, got to uh, Lexington to finish up my undergrad on a, on that Saturday night. And then Monday morning, I had a job interview for a internship at an RIA, uh, just an investment advisory firm. And so uh, that was a little over 10 years ago. And that's kind of been my career path ever since. Um, I, you know, uh, blessed, call it serendipity, whatever you want, uh, fell into it because the guys that gave me the job, I didn't know what I was talking about. I really knew that I enjoyed interest rates, but beyond that, didn't know a lot. Uh, but from there, you know, I finished up my undergraduate degree. I uh, got that in economics, um, went and got a master's in financial planning, uh, worked for Merrill Lynch. That was my first job out of school. Spent a couple of years in Hot Springs, Arkansas, working for Merrill Lynch. That was Interesting. Jumping into a new town where I know no one and trying to find clients, not a great experience. Would not recommend that for anybody. Um, after that, worked for Ameripress for a few years. And then three years ago, I launched my own firm, uh, Plentiful Wealth. Um, I enjoy designations. I enjoy learning. So I kind of keep going back to school. I'm just stretching out that GI Bill as long as I can. So I uh, picked up some other designations along the way. It's just, you know, life is good. That's kind of the quick background. So when you launched Plentiful Wealth, what's your kind of ideal client? What does that look like? Uh, yeah. you know, obviously, that's a, a lot of work and a lot of fun in certain days. In certain days, yeah, I'm sure you're frustrated with it. So totally. tell me a little bit about 
kind of launch yeah. your own firm. So my ideal client these days is someone that is within five years of retirement for sure, but most of them end up being within two years of retirement because that's where I've found that you can make the biggest difference as far as uh, making the transition process into retirement easier, more efficient, and uh, taking some of the stress off my clients. So I'd say anywhere from you know 50 to 55 to 65 to 70, that's kind of my sweet spot as far as ages go. Uh, as far as what kind of client, um, you know, typically I'm in Louisville, uh, Kentucky. So there are big industries here are UPS, Humana, Norton, uh, GE, just any of the big uh, employers we have here in town. I'm familiar with all of their uh, retirement plans at this point. You know how that goes. You just you learn uh, kind of the ins and outs and how you can best take advantage of what they offer. So that's that's my typical client, uh, pre-retiree, just a couple years out figuring out how do I make that next step and how do I make it as efficient as possible? So how do you help them uh, kind of figure out what I always call that last Friday? So yep. when's the last Friday that I have to work? Beyond that, if I want to, that's something different. Um, yeah. How do you help your clients be able to figure out what's that retirement look like and then make that transition? So I'm even going to zoom out on that a little bit. Um, before we ever get to figuring out when the last day is going to be or any of that stuff, it really comes down to envisioning the next stage. Um, I call it, you know, for me, it's my dream plan build process. And so the first step is just dreaming. What, what does that look like for you? So you retire on that Friday. What's that next Monday going to look like? Uh, because you can only watch so much Judge Judy before you're just done. Uh, usually that's about 30 minutes. And so same thing, I mean, for golf or for anything, you have to have, you can't just, retirement can't be about leaving your job. It has to be about going to something. So that can be volunteering. It can be working part-time because you enjoy it. It can be working at a golf course. It can be spending time with your family, traveling, any of those things. There's really no wrong answer. The only wrong answer is not having an answer. So that's the first part. It's really working with my clients to figure out what is that going to look like. Um, I actually have a workbook, and if any of the listeners want to hear it, um, I can send Brent the, uh, the link to it. And it's just a two, three-page guide, and it goes through. Uh, have you ever looked, uh, looked at Rick Kaler's work on life planning? Yes. So yep. it goes through the uh, three life planning questions, which uh, for the listeners out there, the first one is, if you won the lottery tomorrow, what would you do with your life? Essentially, if you took money out of the equation, what's your perfect life look like? The second one is going to be if you had five, seven, ten years left to live, you find out that you have an incurable disease and you don't know when, when you're going to pass away, but you know that you're going to have enough money to be comfortable during that time. And you know that your health is going to be pretty good right up until the time where you fall over. What are you going to do? How do you make the most of those remaining years? Uh, and then finally, third question, and you notice they kind of get a little bit deeper as you go, yep. is if you're sitting on your deathbed surrounded by family and you're looking back over your life and you're trying to figure out and you're really just reviewing and saying, what am I proud of? What were my biggest accomplishments? And conversely, what are the things that are left undone? What do I wish I would have done during my life? And this one's just to say, Let's get ahead of that. Let's make sure you're not having that conversation on your deathbed, that you know what those are, and let's build that into your uh, retirement plan. So maybe that's something as uh, simple as going to see the Great Pyramids at Giza, Great Pyramid at Giza. Maybe it's something more like a lifestyle that you're spending more time with your grandkids. There's no wrong answer here, but that's where I'm going uh, early on in the dream process. And so before my clients ever get to the point of talking about dollars, they need to know what that's going to look like. Mm -hmm. Once you have that, then you can kind of look at the dollars and you can back into that. 
um, typically, you know, we're going to look and say, okay, what are you spending now? How are you, how will your spending change in retirement? I mean, that's the technical side. And I, I hate to say that it's not hard, but it, it's not, we can figure that out. You've done this for years. You know how that goes. So it's way more important to figure out what you want to do. And then you can figure out what that looks like on a number, from a number perspective, you can figure out, okay, if you're retiring at uh, 62 or 60, whatever that age is, then that brings up other concerns. Uh, then we're going to go through healthcare. How are you going to pay for healthcare during retirement? Um, especially for that gap until you hit Medicare. Uh, likewise, if you say, hey, I want to retire a little early, I want to retire at 54, 55, then that brings up a whole other set of questions because mm -hmm. then you're thinking, okay, I, if I'm retiring at 54, then I can't access my workplace 401k. So what are you going to do for that gap? Or if you want to retire at 55, then do we leave some in your 401k? And then we just take that out until you hit uh, 59 and a half. And then basically what I'm saying is there are a lot of levers there. Um, and optimizing your retirement is figuring out the best way to pull those levers to get where you want to go. Uh, there's no, again, no right or wrong answer. And it's really hard because it really, it's such a personal, uh, personal journey. You know, there's not one right or wrong answer for anyone. And when people talk about, you know, the future of AI and complete little side note here, it's one of the reasons why I'm not super concerned about AI and financial planning, because I think it is such a personal decision that you can't replace that. You can replace mm -hmm. number crunching. You can replace asset allocation. You can replace most of the investing component. But when it comes to actually having the deep conversations, you can't ever replace that. Yeah. So does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. So you brought up a couple of good points uh, kind of want to hit back on too. So planning obviously is one of the things that I'm very passionate about. I know you are as well. You know, there's an interesting thing that you learn as you're going through, uh, you know, becoming a certified financial planner is that it's a lot of math and calculations. I think the interesting thing about actually putting planning into practice mm -hmm. is there's a science where we do all the math and all that kind of fun stuff, but there's an art. And the okay. art is exactly what you're talking about is how do we kind of get the right numbers that make sense, but you also have to have things that you're going to do. Um, you know, we always kind of talk through, if you don't have hobbies, you're probably not ready to retire. Totally. You got to be able to do something after that point, because yep. if not, I don't know the exact statistics, but I know health declines drastically when you're mm -hmm. not keeping busy. Uh, and a lot of times as we're trying to plan for people to get through kind of what we call the go-go gears, where you're doing yep. all that traveling hobbies and things, Maybe the slow go where you're doing a little bit, but bringing it down and then the no go years, you know, all of that uh, takes a little bit of a different toll on your finances and what it looks like. So how do you help people kind of work through those? And then I want to bring back around to the AI question, because I think that's sure. interesting as well. Yeah. So I, I think that really comes down to knowing your client, knowing their situation and knowing what's important to them. So it's when you're talking about what are they going to do during those uh, go go years? You have to, I want them to be able to say, okay, you know, I plan on playing golf three days a week, or I plan on fishing, or I plan on doing X, Y, Z woodworking. Uh, again, there's no wrong answer there. Um, the lack of an answer is a problem. And so if I hear that, you know, they're kind of waffling, they're saying, you know what, I might do this, I might do that. I say, let's, let's dive in. Let's double, double click on that because it, it is important that you have some sort of answer. And so Sometimes when you deal with a couple, it's interesting to see how different or similar those Totally. Right. So it's funny you say that uh, on my worksheet that I mentioned earlier, um, what I suggest is print out two copies and each spouse fills it out separately. 
And that way, after that, go back, sit down together and go through line by line or answer by answer, because you're absolutely right on that. Um, and it's not something you really want to be surprised by. It's a whole lot easier to have that conversation ahead of time and say, you know, like, for example, um, one client might want to have a vacation home at the beach. The other might want to have one in the mountains. And obviously, like, that's a pretty extreme example. But if you have that conversation, then, you know, maybe they come to some sort of conclusion. Maybe they whatever. But you're not blindsided by it. You're not blindsided when all of a sudden one spouse says, oh, yeah, I found this house. I think, you know, we can afford it. Let's go ahead and let's put an offer in. And the other spouse says, oh, that's about 600 miles from where I wanted to buy. So that's a you can avoid some of those. And that really does kind of go back to the finances. Um, mm -hmm. And to be completely honest, I found, you know, when you're talking about the CFP process, uh, whenever I got out of school with the CFP and everything, I had this ex expectation that everyone was going to be so wow, like, oh, look at these tax strategies, or let's look at this retirement income plan. And the biggest thing that I've learned over the last 10 years is that no one cares. What people care about is outcomes. Mm -hmm. People care that they have enough money to live on. They care that their check is there on the first of every month or however often they want it. They care that they're not having too much volatility. Their portfolio is doing kind of what they expect. And then part of that goes back to setting expectations. But that's what they care about. You can pull out all these fancy strategies and maybe you can quantify, oh, okay, we got some tax savings in 30 years. Uh, but at the end of the day, it that's something that we care about as financial advisors. And I love it. I'll nerd out about financial planning all day long. But one of the biggest things that I do, and I think one of the biggest values that I provide is the ability to take jargon and take that financial, all the financial strategies, simplify them down and say, hey, this is exactly how this impacts your life. This is how it's going to make your life better and gets you towards that goal that we really worked on back in the dream part of the process. Um, you know, for example, one of the, for years, and I'm sure you had this conversation too, uh, people have been talking about social security strategies and they're really important. Don't get me wrong. Um, they were more important about five up until 2017 with some changes that came through there. Um, now, honestly, I tell most people, unless there's a reason not to take your social security early, it goes back to your question about those go-go years. You know, there's the numerical answer on so many things. And then there's the actual answer because you have to take into account what people's goals are and what they actually really, what's going to make their life better. And so, yeah, you can, I can do the math. And if I, if you say, Hey, Brent, you're going to live till 85, maybe you'll get an extra, you know, 30, 40,000 over the, the course of your lifespan by delaying your uh, social security till age 70. But maybe I know you and I know that hey, you've got some really big plans for when you hit 62 and you want to retire, you want to be done. You want to go, fishing in Canada, or you want to go see uh, the Mediterranean, whatever that looks like, there's no wrong answer again. Uh, the value of that dollar by starting those social security payments at 62 way outweighs the potential cost mm -hmm. at, when you're 82 or 83. Um, so that's it goes back to your health, right? So oh, totally. not only your physical health, but your mental health. 100%. By taking it earlier gives you a, a little bit less anxiety about it. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, because at that point, you're putting the risk on the government. I mean, you know, yeah, you might you might not live as long, but I, I think that's when you're looking at our lifespans, lifespan versus health span is something so important. And that kind of mm -hmm. goes back to your what you were talking about, the go-go, slow-go and no-go years. Um, you know, the average lifespan is what, 
80, 81, depending on where you're looking at, somewhere in that range. But when you're actually looking at the effective uh, time that we can do what we want, um, we can travel, we can, you know, uh, deal with all the activities of daily living, but even beyond that, actually enjoy ourselves. Often there's a five or 10 year gap between your lifespan and your health span. Mm-hmm. And so you want to maximize, and this actually even goes into two parts. You want to maximize what you're doing during your the healthy part of your life. Uh, but one of the other things I talk about with my clients is when you're 50, 55, 60, you need to be maximizing your health because that's going to make do so much for making your retirement better. Um, and there's not really a, a, there's not a dollar cost to that. And let's be real. I'm not, I'm not a, uh, I'm a CFP, not a personal financial or personal, uh, trainer or anything like that. That's not CPT. I guess I think that's what they are. <laughs> so, but it's so important because if you can do the simple things, uh, Peter Atia has a really great book called Outlive. And, you know, there are four main, uh, killers in the United States outside of, uh, accidents, that sort of thing. The number one's heart disease. If you can get ahead of that and prevent atherosclerosis, uh, I can't even say it. You know what I'm talking about. Atherosclerosis. I'm from Eastern Kentucky and I can't speak very well. <laughs> uh, if you can prevent heart disease, if you can uh, mitigate your metabolic syndrome uh, issues, uh, liver issues, that, if you can go through, it's harder on the cancer and the uh, neurodegenerative side, but really the heart disease and the metabolic uh, issues. You can, do, you can prevent a lot of that through exercise and eating well. And that's going to go a long way to having a better retirement. That's great. Well, and I think a lot of it, too, is just the mindset, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you can get your head wrapped around those, and I, I love exactly what you said, simplifying some of the, the big tasks. You know, I always tell clients, it's, what's in it for you? Uh, I may have the best tax strategy or best estate planning strategy, but if it if I can't boil that down into exactly how that's going to affect you, it doesn't really matter because everything that we do is really trying to make that easier for them. Uh, and so that's a lot of what we do in explaining as a CFP. And so certainly love that. So want to get back to the AI question. Uh, yep. So I've gotten this a lot, you know, how does AI affect uh, financial planning and kind of the whole thing? Um, and I have certain opinions on it. Sure. I still kind of agree with what you started with was, uh, you know, the human element is still a big deal. I think it can help us in a professional life, but what's your thoughts on AI today and what that looks like in the future? So I think it will definitely affect our, our profession to some extent. Um, I can tell you, I already use, you know, I subscribe to the uh, chat GPT four, so I can use it quite a bit. And just from an efficiency standpoint it is absolutely beneficial. Uh, Cause you know, I'm able to use it for quickly writing out emails, uh, outlining blog posts, that sort of stuff. That's fantastic. Um, and so that's just, you know, time wise, that takes time that a good example is, uh, every week I put out a newsletter, um, on my newsletter, I take it, turn that into a tweet, a Twitter thread, post that up in the past. It took me several hours to be able to con- condense that into succinct, concise, uh, tweets. Now copy and paste, drop it into chat GBT and it, you know, pops out, uh, a tweet thread, including emojis. It's really <laughs> super cool. No, I, do I read that? Yeah, I have to read a bit, go back, read through it, make sure that it's still in my voice, all that. Totally fair. But it saves me a couple hours. That's more time that I can spend uh, looking over a client's plan, reaching out to a client, anything like that. Um, and that's, you know, that's stage one. That's super short. 
here right now. Uh, going forward, I think what we're going to see is as we have more data points available and we have a better ability to use AI to analyze those data points, you know, at the end of the day, AI is essentially a sorting function. It recognizes patterns, it takes those patterns and turns it into outcomes. So for us, I think it's going to be really interesting that if you have, uh, say you use Money Guide Pro and one of their uh, uh, tools to actually pull all your platform data into, into it, or any of them, my capital, any of the aggregators. So if you're able to pull all these data points and you can see, okay, this is what your spending looks like. So honestly, spending is probably a really uh, good place where you can say, hey, based on your spending, you know, this is, a, it's super easy to categorize spending into uh, shopping versus food versus whatever. But to be able to take that and take it to the next granular level, um, AI is going to be able to do that and say, this is probably where you're spending too much. Um, or it can even just raise red flags and say, hey, this month compared to last month, we're seeing certain trends. That's going to be helpful. Uh, it'll also be helpful, you know, when I'm actually having those conversations with clients, and I ask, so how much do you spend on a monthly basis? Because that's usually you know, the base question we I use for figuring out what are they going to spend in retirement? Uh, so often, I, you know, I get it kind of a blank look because when you spend across a couple of credit cards, you have a debit card, you have some stuff that's auto drafted. It's hard to keep track of all that. Whereas AI it has the ability to really do a good job of synthesizing all that data into one number. Um, and honestly, over a long enough time period with enough data points, I think they'll even be able to do an even better job of saying, this is your current spending, but based on these other 150,000 retirees that we've tracked over the last 10 years, this is how we expect your spending to change in retirement. Because, um, you know, right now we have a really rough, like we say, okay, replacement rule, 70, 80% of your pre, uh, pre-retirement income. In reality, that's a complete rule of thumb. Whereas if you use AI or something that's able to better process that data, uh, I think we can get a pretty good, accurate, more accurate answer for that. Um, same thing. I think it goes right to what we were just talking about too, mm-hmm. is in those go-go years, it may be 120. Totally. And you yep. slug them, you know, maybe 90 or so, and then your mm-hmm. kind of no-go years, depending on whether you need long-term care, could be 60% or maybe 110, you know? And so yep. we don't have enough accurate data points. And I think everybody's health history obviously plays into that. So, yep. you know, bringing, I, I think some of the, the outside information uh, from a planning standpoint, which includes your health and your well-being and mental state and all those into uh, financial planning will be interesting. Uh, you're absolutely right. You know, we're also seeing it um, more in the health, is tying back into health. Uh, when you're buying life insurance now, so many of the places are using life insurance or are using AI in the process of underwriting your life insurance instead and of just whatever data your watch is picking up. Yep. Yep. It's all well, same, same thing. So yep. I'm, I'm with you. It's all that's out there. Uh, it'll be interesting, you know, long-term care. I think that'll be an interesting area because over the last 25, 30 years, uh, look at Genworth, you know, now there are only three or four companies that are actually writing long-term care insurance mm-hmm. and, Regardless of the overall um, changing of the bureau- bureaucratic approach to it, so where some states are requiring uh, long-term care insurance, but just looking at the actual um, corporate issuers, so they grossly uh, misunderestimated uh, how much it would take to co- to cover the cost of long-term care. But now we have enough data points where we should be able to get a lot better estimate of what that's going to look like. Um, so I think AI is, you know, another another place where that can be a bit beneficial.
That's great. I, I agree with you. You know, a lot of the kind of remedial tasks, the daily stuff that takes a lot of time, uh, data input, you know, those I think are going to be very quickly incorporated. Uh, Long term, I think, you know, some of it's still to, to be able to tell if everybody can get the same portfolio information and things, how that starts to affect uh, kind of the financial planning aspects. But it always goes back to the human element of everybody has different goals. Uh, I like what you had said before is I, I tell clients a lot of times to go home and think about those dreams. Mm -hmm. uh, we may not be able to fulfill all of them with what you've saved. Of course. But, you know, sit down with a glass of bourbon, glass of wine and, yep. you know, kind of talk through what that really looks like what do you wanted it to look like and do you think you're on path and then we can always kind of bring in the data to help support uh whether you can get there or maybe you need to scale it back but yeah whatever those things are, it, are helpful at the end of the day our job is helping clients understand what levers to pull so you know i always say you can retire earlier retire later spend more spend less i mean at the end of the that is the very basic uh two levers you can pull. So being able to know what those trade-offs are, I think that's the most, that's a huge uh, value to be able to say, oh yeah, you know, I'm okay with working an extra year if I get an extra 10 grand in retirement or whatever that is annually. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's really helpful from our point of view. So Jeb, you've been doing this a little over a decade. Uh, I've got almost 16 years of experience in it now. What do you tell clients when they're kind of first calling up, I guess prospect mm -hmm. at this point, you know, what questions should they be asking their financial advisor, uh, both whether they have one now or they're interviewing for a new one? Yep. What types of things should, should they be looking for? So great question. Uh, and this one, my views have kind of evolved over the years. Um, in the past, I'll just say I was kind of a Puritan when it came to financial planning. Um, as I've gotten older, I've realized, you know, there are great planners everywhere. So a couple of things that, I, that are super important. Um, first is, are you a fiduciary? At, at the end of the day, that is the, I, I, I say that's the question that if you, they say no, walk away. Mm -hmm. uh, beyond that though, I, I think everything kind of comes back to, can this person, does this person have the skill, the education, the experience to help me reach my goals, whatever those are. So on the one hand, uh, I think CFP is a great place to start if you're trying to figure out education. Um, or honestly, it's all three of those because CFP uh, has a three-year experience requirement. There's a comprehensive exam and there's an education portion as well. So, you know, if someone has a CFP letters that they've passed, they've completed all three of those. They have a minimum experience in education. And they've uh, taken the fiduciary oath. So yep. And, the, and, and their fiduciary oath. An extra layer. Yep. So I, I think that's just the easiest uh, de minimis requirement these days. That if you're looking for someone that's doing true financial planning, I hate to say that they have to be a CFP because it's not. There are good advisors that aren't CFPs, but I, I would say if they're under 45 or 50 and they're not a CFP, I would ask why. Um, I think for that older generation, it wasn't necessarily as important. It wasn't as popular. You know, maybe they made it they 20 years into their career and they said, "Why do I want to bother with that?" But if someone's been doing this for 10 years and they're making a career out of it and they didn't see the point. Uh, I think that raises the bigger question of how dedicated are they to their craft uh, and to continually learning, which brings up my next point. Just ask, what are you doing to get better? Mm -hmm. um, and this is just kind of a curiosity question for me, because I think if you care about what you do, then you should always be trying to make yourself better at it. Um, so personally, you know, I've went through uh, charter advisor and philanthropy, uh, CFP, 
uh, certified exit planner, um, accredited portfolio management analyst, charter retirement planning counselor. I think that's it. Uh, and then the master's program. And so I just keep going back to school. I think there probably is a place where it's diminishing marginal return that you're not getting a lot out of another designation. Right. Honestly, I've dropped most of them off my, uh, off my card anyway. But I, I do think it's fair to say the more education, especially specialized education. So, you know, like Brent, you work with, with doctors. Um, I think there might be a designation, but honestly, my understanding is probably not accredited. doesn't, not really right. a big deal, but you have the experience there. And so you can speak to, oh, well, these hospital systems have this kind of retirement. These are the issues. Or let's talk about physicians and how they're billing and how that goes back into the practice management. Or they, what is it, CEUs or whatever the those different units are, all that. I Honestly, I don't mess with that. So that's not my area. Um, but knowing that is a huge help. And I think the more specialized a career you have. So I would say for someone out there that has a, W-2 jobs, they've got a 401k, you know, pretty simple financial situation. Most anyone can help you. Um, from the education experience side, there's probably nothing terribly uh, hard. But if you're a business owner, if you have, uh, especially, you know, if you're a physician business owner, so you have a K-1, you probably have student loan debt, you have all these different confounding factors that go into making the situation confusing. Um, and you really want someone on your side that has seen this before because, you know, you don't want to be the guinea pig. You don't want your advisor learning how to do something on your dime. Uh, so I think that's kind of what you look for next and just say, hey, what is your what's your ideal client look like? What is your average client? And then you're kind of a couple of things you can take away from this. Um, one, are you their ideal client? Two, if you're not, are they honest about it? I mean, will they just say, you know what, you're not? But and then have a good explanation, because I think that goes a long way. Um, not too long ago, I had a couple of attorneys come and uh, ask me if I could do some business consulting for them. And I was straight up and said, you know, that's not my normal area. I do some succession planning for uh, for attorneys, but not a whole lot past that. Um, and they said, well, are you willing to learn? I said, you know, it's kind of interesting. So, yeah, I'll do that. Uh, but we also structured it so that I'm not learning on their dime. It's not hourly or anything like that. So I, I think that brings me to my third point. How are you getting paid? Um, personally, I, I think there are a couple ways that I would prefer to get paid. Um, AUM, Asset Center Management, that's traditional. That's what 90, 95% of people offer. There are arguments for and against it. Not going to get into them now. Whatever. Uh, typically, depending on the size of your portfolio, you'll be anywhere between uh, three quarters of a percent to one and a half percent. I mean, it's a wide range, half a percent to one and a half percent. I mean, something like that. Uh, next up is subscription. So that's just saying, hey, I'm going to pay $150,000, $500,000 a month, whatever that is. And it's all kind of wrapped up into that. Some people take a uh, subscription. They'll pair that with a much smaller AUM. They'll charge 0 0.35, 0 0.5, something like that on assets and they'll charge just a flat subscription for the financial planning. Again, that's, that's okay. Uh, I think there are different ways to, to do that. Um, but the big takeaway here is it should be transparent. However you're being charged, you should know what you're paying and you should, because if you know what you're paying, you can judge what the value is. Right. You can just, that's what it comes down to. How much am I getting out of this? What am I paying? If I'm getting more than I'm paying for it, that's okay. That's why you continue working with an advisor. Uh, but, Whenever I was 
reviewing a, uh, a portfolio in the past. I'll just leave it completely wide open and say, whenever I was reviewing a, a portfolio in the past, uh, the client asked me, so what am I paying? And I looked at their portfolio and I said, well, you've got about seven different fees on here. Uh, and Brent, you're going to be able to guess the firm on this one. Um, there is a flat financial planning fee. There were commissions on uh, REITs. There was a uh, fee one one and a quarter on the uh, just on the regular uh, managed money, and then there's something else there. But there are a couple, and there was life insurance, and there were a couple annuities. Portfolio fee probably on the individual funds. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, they might have even had a C share in there, just you know, <laughs> rounded out. Um, so <laughs> that's not cool. Uh, yep. At the end of the day, trying to be able to break that out and, and put a value on that is incredibly hard. Even for me, I mean, I look at it and yeah, can I put it into a spreadsheet? Sure. But it, if you're selling something that has, you know, all these front loaded funds or honestly, I don't like non-traded REITs. I don't like private REITs because they are, they have pretty expensive upfront costs. The one that the gentleman I'm talking about had was like 8% upfront. Oh, and you know, on day one, you've got 92 cents on the dollar that you invested that's actually going to work for you. That's a, that's a couple of years. That's a year of you're not doing anything, but Return maybe breaking back. even. Yeah. So that's where, for me, it comes back to transparency. If you're transparent, if you can justify your value, that's what I think you should be looking for in an advisor. That's some great tips. And certainly we'll leave that large uh, national firm unnamed, but um, yeah, I, I would say the other piece that I always look for is just a match. You know, mm -hmm, I, I have totally. some clients before that just based on kind of personality thing, I'm probably not the advisor for you. Yep. Uh, and then communication. Mm -hmm. So how often do you want to be communicated with? Or are they able to, to kind of match that? And um, I think how do you lot, want to be communicated? Everything you said was fantastic, but. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. And honestly, it's a really good point. I, I've totally left that out because yeah, it's different if you want, our older generations, they want phone calls more often than within emails, but mm -hmm. you know, younger clients, they want texting or they want emails. They don't want to be a, get a phone call once a month. And so it just, it's very different. And that kind of goes back to level setting. I mean, yeah. if you get along with someone, just make sure that you're on the same page and you have the same expectations and it'll probably be okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's my approach there. So I have also worked with several business owners on succession planning. I don't have a SEPA. Uh, so actually, I'm in the same boat as you. I always constantly love to learn. Uh, I've done a lot of that outside of um, the SEPA designation. But talk a little bit about SEPA. Kind of what did that yeah. give you some extra tools in your toolbox to be able to be confident in business succession planning? So, yeah, it, SEPA came up a couple of years ago when um, I had a couple of clients that were exiting their businesses. So SEPA is the Certified Exit Planning Advisor. Um, it's not exclusive to financial advisors. You will see, uh, you will see actually a lot of random folks have it. CPAs will have it. You'll see some insurance agents have it. You'll see some uh, state planning attorneys that have it or transactional attorneys. Transaction specialists. Yeah. Yep. So it, really the biggest thing about the SEPA is that they teach um, to really have a team-based approach because, you know, it goes like this for so many things. You can only know so many things. You can only be an expert in so many fields. And so for me, you know, I'm an expert in investments. I'm in a pretty darn good at financial planning, but financial planning is not everything. Uh, you need to have the accountant that's there, especially if you're selling a business that's 80% of your net worth. You want to make sure when that tax time comes around that you did some planning ahead on that. You're getting, uh, you're keeping as much of your 
as you can versus paying Uncle Sam. Um, so bringing them in, bringing a uh, valuation advisor in is always big. If you're looking, and again, this is why you don't want to just on a Friday say, hey, I think I'm going to sell my business on Monday. You want to start a couple years out and first identify what your options are uh, and then figure out what your team is going to look like. Because if you can bring an evaluation advisor, they can say, hey, I'm going to comb through your books. I want to figure out some places where we can raise your uh, EBITDA and and we can also raise the valuation multiple because right there, you know, for everyone out there, there are two components essentially of a business valuation. There is what your income is, which is uh, interest or sorry, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and uh, I can't remember what the other, amortization or something like that. Uh, and then there's also the multiple. So typically you're saying, okay, we have a business that our net income essentially is $1 million per year. Beyond that, we're going to get a uh, 4x multiple on the on the valuation. So the total business value is going to be $4 million. Um, so as you can imagine, if you want to raise the value of the business, you have two different two different levers to pull. You can raise the business, uh, the actual EBITDA. That's one part to it. And honestly, that's not a bad place to start. But what's even better is if you can raise that multiple. Because if you're going from a 4 to a 6, all of a sudden you have, you know, you raise that by 50%, but you're at a $6 million valuation. Whereas if you raise that 1 million to one and a half, you're still at six, but it's a whole lot harder to raise 50% higher on your, uh, on your income than it is on the multiple side. So that's where I would start out. Find your team, figure out what you want, and then let the professionals handle that because they're really good at it. Um, same thing, having a good uh, transactional attorney is going to be so key. You're going to pay quite a bit for it, but you're only going to do it once. And if they can protect you, uh, so you're not going to get a call in five years on down the road and say, hey, you know what? You still got some liability there. You're getting sued. That's a big deal. Um, beyond that, yeah, that's honestly, that's the biggest thing. Just identify your team and then figure out how to get the most you can from your business. Yeah, the team approach is fantastic. It, it's tough to be able to know all the pieces of the puzzle, especially when you're dealing with a business owner. Uh, so love that advice. Business owners are interested. Oh yeah, they definitely get uh, pretty detailed too, depending De upon the type of business. So detailed, but a hundred miles an hour at the same time, and so you just have to be bam, bam, bam. Here are your main points. Let them jump in as much as they want, and then get it implemented. Yep. So to talk a little bit about charitable planning as well. So you have. I think the cap, is that correct? Yep. So designation, yep. how do you so, help support clients kind of from a charitable giving standpoint? Yeah, so the cap's great. Um, really how it goes back to uh, the charitable giving. Really the process is simple. It's figuring out what's what's important to you, just like everything else I've talked about today. So in charitable giving, it really comes down to a couple of things. Um, first is having that conversation, are you already giving? Um, if someone says yes, I'll, then it's walked through the conversation of saying, are you doing it in the most advantageous way that possible? Many people aren't. Uh, the issue I see most often is people write, uh, well, they have two different problems. One, from a tax perspective, they're just writing checks. You know, that's, that's okay, but cash donations often aren't the best. Um, especially over the last few years since the standard deduction was increased, most people can't atomize their deductions anyway. So they come to the end of the year, they're like, hey, I gave 2000 I gave 5000 whatever that is, especially in retirement. And I say, well, I'm really happy for you, 
but you can't you can't deduct that. Um, over the last couple of years, you could deduct three hundred of it, but that that's it. So then, going to the next point is, what are some of the strategies available um, for those who are over seventy and a half? Then I'm looking at qualified charitable distributions. That's often the best option, um, and that's just writing a check directly from an IRA to the charity. It doesn't go to the person. Uh, it counts towards a requirement of distribution, but it doesn't count as taxable income. Super simple. You can still take the higher standard deduction. It's a win-win. So you can do that. Um, for those, you see that most often. I see that a lot in one specific case. What's that? Church donations. Yes. Yeah. Church donations are are very big there. Uh, but honestly, I mean, I've used it for a number of charities. I mean, church donations are most common, but that's just because that's where I see most people giving. Um, I was going to say, I, I think that's one of the reasons I see it the most there is because people are used to writing it out of their checking account. Mm-hmm. And just by making that small change to a QCD, they can make a big impact. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of clients want to give more charitably. And so being able to make a QCD is a great way to do it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, that check I've been writing for 50 years, I didn't it, think about using my IRA money uh, I think to it's, be able to do that. It's also changed over the last couple of years because I'm seeing more churches that have a uh, digital offering plate. You know, mm-hmm. when I was growing up, you pass the plate, you put your check, you put your dollars in there, and that's that. But now so many places, they'll have a QR code. And so yeah. I think that takes some of the uh, social pressure off actually putting something in. And so I think it's a lot easier to say, oh, yeah, my check already went and you just don't worry about it versus, you know, I grew up in a small church in a small town. So it, there's there is a little bit of social pressure that people I hate to say it, but they want to see that you're that you're contributing. Um, so so there's that. Uh, the, another strategy there is the donor advised fund, uh, especially for retirees who, you know, I usually pair uh, donor advised funds with uh, bunching, gift bunching. So mm-hmm. basically you're taking three years of gifts, giving it to a donor advised fund, which is just kind of like a charitable bank account. Right. And so you can write checks out of that charitable bank account. You can still spread them out over three years, however many years you want. But the benefit is you get the deduction in the year you give the, the gift to the DAF. So going back to uh, clients that aren't able to take, aren't able to itemize their deductions, what we'll do is we'll say, okay, you know what? You average $5,000 a year and standard deductions with 27000 26000 whatever it is. So let's take six years worth of deductions. You worked at UPS, you had an employer stock purchase plan. So you have all this appreciated stock over there that you're not going to touch because it's got a super low basis, a whole lot of gains. You don't want to worry about that. You don't want to pay the taxes on it. So let's take some of that stock. Let's kick that over in the DAF. Let's kick 30,000 in there. And in the DAF, you can sell it, rebalance into regular portfolio, lowering your risk. You can continue writing the checks out of there mm-hmm. just like you were already doing. You get the deduction for the full fair market value of the stock but you didn't have to sell it and hit the, get those capital gains to be able to, to do that. So it's the best of all possible worlds. You get the, uh, the dedu- full deduction for the stock in that first year. The other five years, you're going to take the standard deduction. You're going to maximize it that way. So that's just another one of the strategies that I bring out. Um, and that also kind of brings me to my next point on, okay, so there are two issues. One is tax issue. The other is more of a shotgun gifting strategy. And this isn't, this has nothing to do with you personally uh, for the, as the giver. But the problem is, you know, we all get uh, starting Thanksgiving. We get how many 
letters, notes, emails saying, hey, it's the end of the year. As you're making your donations for the end of the year, give us 20 bucks. Uh, super common. I know I get a ton of them. Uh, the problem there is whenever you spread your, gift, uh, your gifts out too much, it takes away the impact. Mm-hmm. And so for my clients, I usually try to get them to focus on one, two, maybe three charities. And so maybe it's a church and another charity where it's pretty common. Because if you give a bigger gift, you can have a bigger impact. And at the end of the day, impact's what we care about in charity, right? We're, we're giving because we want to make a difference in this specific area. For me personally, it's homelessness. I volunteer at a homeless shelter. I give to the shelter. And so that's the only place I get right now because I know, I mean, I'm on their finance committee, so I, I know exactly where the money goes. But I also know, again, even if I was just a donor, if you make bigger gifts, you have a bigger ability to call in and say, hey, you know what? Let's walk through the, through the shelter. Let's have this conversation about where this money is going to go. And if you're making a big enough gift, you have the ability to really kind of direct where you want it to go. So if you want to have a gift that maybe it helps one specific group or maybe it's, uh, you know, for the Humane Society, maybe you want to support, uh, you want to build a new wing of the Humane Society. You can do that if you're giving a large enough gift and if it, which is a lot easier to do when you're not spreading your gifts across 20 different uh, organizations, you can have that bigger impact. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And sometimes, uh, you know, Gifting can occur for different reasons. So personal mm-hmm. reasons we talked about. Sometimes you want to see a legacy. Yep. Uh, and sometimes you want to see something done while you're still living. And certainly there's tax strategies and planning strategies that can help with that. But at the end of the day, how do you want to see your dollars used? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a big part that we, we talk to clients about is where your passion is. Absolutely. It makes all the difference. Well, Jeb, it has been a pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, certainly getting some great insight from another CFP and look forward to, uh, to, to putting some information in the show notes uh, for that worksheet as okay. well as your site. Yep. And so people can find you there. Where else can they find you? I know you've got a lot of different channels. Yeah. So honestly, the easiest place to find me, uh, if you are on the, on the internet, go to winifawealth.com. If you want to go to, uh, if you're an Instagram person, go to Jeb Gerald CFP. Uh, those are my two places where I hang out the most, or I guess LinkedIn as well. Any of the three work. great. Awesome. We'll put some of that in the show notes for everybody. It's okay. been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much, Brent. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Physician Financial Checkup Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave a review. You can also find more information on brentboden.com. The information contained in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be construed as financial advice. The opinions expressed are solely those of the host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of any other individual or organization. You should carefully consider your investment objectives, risk tolerance, and time horizon before making any investment decisions. If you are seeking financial advice, you should consult with a qualified financial advisor who can assess your individual circumstances and needs.